CLS is go for main engine, start. Go at throttle up. Negative return. Then we see a nominal Miko. Welcome to space. I'm all out of sorts. I'm all out of sorts. Usually Jake does a bunch of this stuff, and I pushed the wrong button first, and everyone was could see me before they could hear us. But we're here. We're live. Happy Thursday. Caleb Henry is with me. How you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good, man. Good to see you. I This was supposed to be the first episode of Off Nominal live from my couch, uh, but unfortunately, the family had a sickness rolling through, so I was not bringing this sickness onto you uh, with our flights to Space Symposium imminent. Uh, you're leaving pretty soon, I think, right? Sunday, yeah. Sunday, yeah. And I appreciate you sparing me because I have just accepted that it's it's a flip of a coin whether or not I'll get sick on the return from Space Symposium. <laughs> I feel like every conference I go to, there's a very high chance that I'm going to be knocked down for like a couple days afterwards. Oh, yeah. yeah, productivity is, is dropped to zero at that point. So uh, that's going to be an awesome time. We should mention up front, uh, I don't know why it's so bright in my room today. I have to like turn my light down or something. Everything's off. I need Jake back in my life, apparently, to run a successful show. But uh, you are going to be on one of the live shows that I'm doing at Space Symposium, and I am very pumped for it. So Wednesday afternoon, uh, now I'm forgetting which particular time slot, you will be at 2.30 local time. Uh, You're going to be hanging out with me. We've got Peter Beck of Rocket Lab and Jonathan Bailiff, who's the CFO of Redwire. And we're going to talk about all sorts of financial and business strategy stuff. And I felt completely out of my... uh, expertise so i figured I'd, I'd rope you into it and uh it's gonna be a fun time I'm, I'm is there anything in particular you're gonna ask either of them that you want to spoil here uh no <laughs> no all uh, right i'm driving looking forward to uh I'll, I'll tease out one thing which uh i i have a hunch i already know the answer to but you know i find it amusing that um you know rocket lab has expanded so much that peter beck is already equipped they should be called space lab uh I don't know if Redwire supplies any rocketry stuff, uh, any avionics or components or anything. I'm not expecting them to get into the launch business at all, but is there any direction on their side into you know, the launch, launch hmm. side of the equation? Good question. Well, I'm going to have a lot of time to find out because <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> basically doing a Celine Dion style residency at their booth uh, for Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, managingcutoff.com slash live. I've got a whole list of shows here uh, from Tuesday afternoon all the way through the off nominal live show that we'll do next week. Uh, I don't know yet if that'll be live stream on this channel, but it will definitely be posted after the fact. So stay tuned on exactly the logistics there. It will be live streamed to some capacity. I just need to figure that out. So I wanted to plug that up front because uh, that's coming up fast and furious and I'm, I'm pumped for it. So come hang out. If you're at the show, I'll be at the Redwire booth. It's like 1374 or something. It's right next to the NASA booth. Uh, so come find me there. But Caleb, did you bring any fun drinks to the show today? I was going to ask you because you're, you're recovering. <laughs> I, don't know, uh, I don't know what you got. Oh, I went, I went with a very light on the gin, gin and tonic. Because uh, the benefit there is there's I could put a lot of lime in it and uh, it's f- feels hydration feels hydrating even if it's not it's questionably hydrating but I don't know I felt like this was the easiest thing I could go with so went with that all right so I uh, <laughs> I didn't really feel like drinking alcohol today so I grabbed a uh, I have a ginger beer oh yeah look at that from uh, who are these guys Fever you do Tree. love a ginger beer. 
I do. Yeah. I do. I'm a I've seen you drink a couple of ginger beers in my life. I feel like this one has so much ginger. I can't even guarantee that I won't like cough through this <laughs> episode. Like it just it gets button. back of the throat and you're like, all right, well, it's, it's there. There's no substitute. Um, fun fact, if you go to the World Satellite Business Week, I know we're headed for Colorado, but if you make it out to Paris and you go to that show, the hotel bar, which the conference is small, so a lot of meetings happen in the hotel bar there, um, they're very diligent about making sure that you order something while you're there. And in order to not be like wasted all day at this conference, the thing for me that's easiest to order is a ginger beer. And so this same thing right here costs you 10 euros. <laughs> no matter the inflation rate, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, this probably the, uh, inflation or exchange rate is what I meant. Either one, both are high right now. <laughs> yeah. no, just genuinely infuriating. I think it's the same cost for one of these as it is for almost an entire case. <laughs> Well, don't think too hard about it. It'll be fine. Uh, all right. We've got a lot of things that I would like to talk to you about. Uh, number one, you made a trip. We know, I think, actually, people on, on Off Nominal might not know. People on Miko uh, heard you and I take a road trip down to Wallops Island two or three months ago for a Rocket Lab launch. And that was the first launch that you saw from the United States of America, the country in which you live. All of your other launches have happened. The country in which you live and also has one of the highest rates of launches every year, <laughs> forever. And yet, the only ones that you've seen were from all the other launch sites in the world. And you've now continued this love of seeing launches from elsewhere in the world. Uh, and you've made the trip out to the most recent ISRO launch uh, for OneWeb. Uh, yeah. what, what the hell's going on with that? Tell me how that trip even like came about, however much you want to divulge of that. <laughs> I would love to hear the story of, of how that went and uh, what the deal was that you found out out there. Yeah, so I, I should say I have no aversion to American launches. <laughs> they just aren't the ones that I've been invited to as often <laughs> for whatever reason. So, yeah, I, I think the first one I did was uh, was Karoo in French Guiana. Next was Baikonur in Kazakhstan. And now uh, Sri Harikota in India. And the way that happened, see, now I'm going to eat my words. The way that happened is uh, I was invited to a OneWeb launch, and it was from the Cape, but I couldn't go. Uh, you were like, just, sorry, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't do the Cape. <laughs> I don't need a passport. But, um, <laughs> no, I like to I, bring I, as much paperwork as possible when I see rocket launches. So this, this lo- driver's license only is not going to work for me. <laughs> Yeah, I need I need visas and like multiple security checks and all that stuff. I mean, if I don't feel nervous about it, then why am I even there? Um, so no, I I just I couldn't go to the one that was in Florida. It overlapped with something else work related, and um, you know then kind of the time kept ticking by, and I realized that if I was going to try and see a OneWeb launch, I was running out of launches, and so I I reached back out to them and said, Hey, is this invitation still valid and if so can i use it for the india <laughs> is it transferable <laughs> yeah is, is this transferable can i you know, get the credit store credit for for this launch and they said yes you know i needed to get a visa which actually proved fairly straightforward um and they you know, had the had the official invitation and you know, it did come together fairly late so i got the visa and got all the approvals like the week before the launch, like I think it flew on a Sunday, and I like booked my ticket like six days prior on Monday. 
Sounds so, cheap. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> um, so I, I guess uh, this is the launch vehicle that was previously known as the GSLV, but I, apparently they're rebranding this, and they're now it's now just the LVM3. Uh, is that is that rebranding true, or is that just some some stuff that I heard on Twitter? Yeah, uh, so I saw both while I was there. Um, I didn't hear people like say that one had replaced the other in terminology. Um, but you know, I think the biggest thing for me was that this was the this was the point at which that rocket, you know, GSLV Mark III, LVM three, is now a commercial vehicle. Um, you know, before that, it was exclusively for ISRO missions. It was exclusively for science missions or, or what the Indian government did. And it was a lot of um, just working on improving the rocket. You know, it had had a series of kind of troubling issues with the cryogenic upper stage. They just didn't have uh, didn't have a high degree of reliability on it. Um, but they had two very important, you know, successful back-to-back launches with OneWeb uh, and basically proved that it could be used commercially. And so the, you may have seen, I, I've actually kept my word and I have been more active on Twitter this year. I feel like <laughs> that's my outgoing statement on all of these interviews, but I, I tweeted a little thread of things that I had learned and I thought it was fun that this went all the way up to you know, Prime Minister Modi to basically clear it um, and make it okay you know, so that they could use it for a commercial mission. And now there's a strong desire in India to use that rocket for more commercial missions and actually increase the lift capacity uh, a bit more, you know, by a metric ton, which I'm trying to think of a comparable vehicle. You know, it's, it's like 8,000 kilograms to Leo today. So you boost it to 9,000. I want to say, you know, it's still well below like Falcon nine or, you know, your heavy vehicles, but it's not inconsequential. Yeah, it's like a lower lower level Atlas, or I mean, I guess to compare it to what we'll go see in the future, Neutron. It's right in that range of, of Neutron, almost exactly, I think. Yeah, so. yeah, that's probably the best comparison. Um, now, your your view of the launch looked somewhat far away, but I heard that this was not the closest that you got to the rocket. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> uh, we got much closer during a uh, a no cameras allowed. <laughs> visit to the launch pad uh the rocket may have been fueled that's what i've been told <laughs> it may have been fueled that is or isn't you know to be definitely inside a mile <laughs> from this thing probably inside a kilometer you were in the uh, blast range it, yeah it's uh definitely a no smoking environment <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what we need to do based on your love of of international launch sites and your love of being that close to rockets is we need to hook you up with past guest Richard Garriott. Uh, he, I, th- I think I'm remembering that it was him who, was it him? No, you know what? Who it was? It wasn't him. It was somebody at NASA Goddard. I'm thinking of Richard Garriott because he was way too close to a Soyuz launch. But one of the scientists at NASA Goddard, when I went down for a visit down there, uh, told me that he went to, I guess it must have been an H2 launch at some point over in Japan and got to push the button uh there was a button back in the day and he was in like the blockhouse that was like 800 meters from the liftoff <laughs> which is just like shockingly yeah. close uh 
I'll have to um, dig that contact info up because you got to go in that little that little, I don't maybe they won't let you there now with H three, but uh, that would be the premier experience. I'm gonna like lean my head out. I'll probably <laughs> die if I do that. Yeah. No <laughs> competition for who can get closest to a rocket before liftoff. <laughs> that's that's a thing, man. We, it's uh, as Richard Garrett said. That's you could be inside the kill zone if you know the right the right uh, person to talk to out in Baikonur. <laughs> so you you apparently didn't you know, get that experience I, I when you were there. Think- I, I would like, I'm one of those people where like, when I die, you know, I think it would be nice to have my ashes put into space, but you know, this could be, I could just have my ashes under the rocket. <laughs> in the flame so, trench? To, yeah, just put me in the flame trench and just let it shoot out with the rest. That's a new market for Celestis right there. That's uh, way cheaper, uh, same effects, quite epic. Uh, I mean, I'm game. I'm game for that. Yeah. <laughs> Your ashes would event- effectively be in some ocean at some point. So, yeah, that's a good market right there. <laughs> um, business, having now explored all these different launch sites, do you have any general takeaways or vibes from each different one? Like, are there particular things that you remember uh, from each, each of the launch sites you've been to? Uh, you know, each one is definitely really special. And now I'm counting four because, like you said, we did the, the road trip out to, to Wallops. Um, so seeing... One, and Kazakhstan's kind of in a weird spot. I feel like I want to count that as a, se- a, a separate continent, like not really Asia. Very different from India, for sure. Um, but, you know, four wildly different locations, wildly different spaceports. Um, I don't know how to succinctly answer that question. You know, there's uh, <laughs> I, I can say that the one that actually had the most hype was, like, the or energy, like, at the location was the ISRO launch. You know, once that was successful, the, the control room was just flocks of people and lots of young people, uh, you know, people in their 20s and 30s uh, that were there just celebrating and taking pictures together. It reminded me. I love how uh, close this ice cream man's about to get to your window. You That's the same yeah. ice cream man I have, by the way. And just a quick note. Uh, I don't want to blow up his spot. If it's the same guy that uh, has been around for like a decade, he sells more than ice cream is all I'll say. So. All right. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less in Philly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he probably passed your block like 10, 15 minutes ago. Now he's over here. Um, but no, the, the energy there was honestly, it, it wasn't at like early SpaceX Falcon 9 levels, but it's the closest <laughs> that I've seen to it. You know, just like people that were really happy for an, a mission that was really important and we're there to, to celebrate it. So the enthusiasm there was really high. You know, when I was in Baikonur, uh, I was very far away from the actual launch site. And so it was like a bunch of us by a van in the Kazakh desert with like a guy sitting almost on top of the van so that like his radio could like get the signal and it's just like blasting at us in Russian. He's like means nominal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you would expect, really, if if that's what you would imagine for a, for a Russian launch. Yeah. And, um, you know, Karoo is very put together. It's just them kind of fighting back the Amazon and losing and winning at the same time. It's like they've kept it today, but it also rains every day. So like, who who do you how do you really keep score? Um, yeah, they're they're all magical places. Uh, I love spaceports. Uh, I I think I love any space facility, which is not really oh, yeah. to anybody. No, not at all. Tanagashima is the one that I'm I'm always 
I, I have a hard time rating that not the most beautiful one. That is always, every time I see a picture of it, I'm like, wow, those are some good. Because, like, you know, New Zealand, the Mahia Peninsula, where Rock Lab flies, has good cliffs and stuff like that. But Tanagashima also has beaches right there. So it's both. It's both things. It's like beautiful beaches like Canaveral, but cliffs. And I, I love that. It's, it's always got a good, a good vibe to it. So we'll have to take a trip out there. Yeah. You gotta complete the circuit at this point. You're so close at this point. You need to see an orbital launch. I guess like Plezix is kind of out of the question at this point. But I, yeah, I'm counting my one Russian was sufficient. Yeah, one one per country. Will be, yeah. At least. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get to Canaveral at some point. But yeah, you know. One of these days. Um, all right. So that's number one, an awesome trip. I'm curious though, if were there like so you were there to. Like you said, the OneWeb people have invited you to a launch in the past. So you were there kind of in the in the OneWeb capacity. But on the ISRO side of things, I always have a hard time figuring out how they're going to fit into the commercial launch market generally right now. There's a lot of talk about like how there's a big undersupply of launch in that range of payloads because Amazon bought all the launch vehicles for Kuiper. And we've seen like Relativity this week is pivoting on Terran R to go into that range and do it not as cool of a way as they were going to do previously. Um, Neutron is pushing up into that market. So clearly everyone's bailed on the Falcon 1 competitors and even like the one-ton launch vehicles, and they're now setting their eyes on the Falcon 9 class. I don't even understand, though, like, are they going to be able to nail down a bunch of commercial launches? Do you feel like they're going to hit some sort of sweet spot in the market? Do we have any sense of pricing? Like, what's the deal? You know, it's it's kind of amusing. Like, what's that old phrase, um, everything old is new again? Everybody that was working on a small launch vehicle or, or a lot of <laughs> players that were working on small launch vehicles have now had an epiphany that the right way to do it is exactly the way it was done before. Um, you know, just with like 3D printing or carbon composites or you know, something, uh, you know, some smaller differentiator. Um, but in terms of like actual size of rocket, uh, it's changed you know, a lot of that. I do feel really feel like it's the difficulty of, of chasing a moving target. You know, this is an industry that um, if you look back, like a lot of the, like the inception for small launch where everybody suddenly decided, excuse me, it's the ginger, it's the ginger beer. beer. <laughs> there it is. And I've only taken like two sips. So <laughs> it'll be fun. But the, the inception for this was around 2017 you know if you look at uh, i should have sent you this beforehand if i knew we were going to go here but the chart that we have of like the founding dates for like various launch vehicles it's all right there which is like within like 12 to 18 months of the announcement of starlink and OneWeb as constellations basically everybody said oh wow there's these huge new commercial systems let's develop rockets that can launch them We've got mega constellations. We've also got you know, a lot of CubeSats going up from Planet Inspire. ISRO was an even bigger deal then. I would argue they're less of a deal in the launch scene now um, because you had Planet that put like, was it 88 or 104 CubeSats on uh, a PSLV? And, you know, they didn't have any viable commercial option, none that were really compelling. So, you had this exodus of business from uh, the U.S. and Europe looking for cheap ways to space. It made sense um, until it didn't, until you realized that 
for Mega Constellations, the cheapest thing for them was still going to be heavy launch, that their priority was going to be, uh, when they can, filling out an entire ring or orbital plane of satellites with uh, a single vehicle. Uh, and that the, the dollar per kilogram tends to work more favorably with big rockets as opposed to small. So it's been challenging. And you, know, you see this gradual metamorphosis uh, into you know, what was there before. What I'm hoping is that um, the energy that all of these companies carried in, this really you know, strong entrepreneurial energy, this do something different, you know, change, change the game, push the envelope, that, that carries through because uh, the sense that I've gotten is before the emergence of all these startups, before SpaceX and, and you know, the hundred or so others, um, there was, you know, the power was with the launch providers. So yes, they came out with new rockets on occasion, but there wasn't like this huge impetus to make something better and to lower the price and to, you know, experiment with 3D printing, reusability, you know, new manufacturing techniques. Um, I hope that that ethos stays. Uh, and if it does, then that makes me optimistic for a future where the price for a launch can continue to come down. And that can serve as a, an enabler for lots of new businesses going forward. The, the weird thing with that is, like, we've heard that for so long that, you know, people are bringing down the price of launch. And it's like, the graph is heading in that direction, but it's not as extreme as people were hoping. And and that's primarily because, mm -hmm. like, you need more than one player doing it before there's actual, like, SpaceX only needs to be $1 cheaper than, for a while, Atlas V, right? They could have bid every launch $1 cheaper than Atlas V and won every single NASA launch and every single Space Force launch and anyone that they're going against. And they only have to stay $1 cheaper than the next cheapest person. And so, like, that... It's just we've been waiting so long for anyone to put any pressure on that, and for a while it was like, okay, is is ISRO gonna? What's the new the new uh, like the commercial arm? I forget what it's called. Uh, new Space like India new Space Limited India. or something. Nizzle to just not differentiate from Nizzle, the other one. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was like that, and then there was talk of, oh, what is H three gonna do in the commercial market? Are there like players that are gonna come in and have different pricing models or shake things up? And no one's really ever put pressure on and on Falcon 9 in any way, right? Like, the price has gone up of a Falcon 9 over years. The price of electrons have gone up over the years because everything gets more expensive, obviously, but, like, there is no pressure keeping things down. Um, there's the whole question of, like, the Chinese commercial companies, however however heavy of air quotes you want to put around commercial or private or whatever. Uh, like, you know, they was it Satellogic that bought a bunch of launches uh, on Chinese rockets? I forget exactly what their deal was, but... Yeah, they did. Once There's, upon a time. Before once upon they a time. wanted to do business with the government. Well, and then that's the whole thing, right? Like, it, it's unclear on how much these markets actually interact on a global scale. On a global scale. So, like, how much of the pricing from one market does impact the other is very strange. Because um, even then, there's going to be stuff like there are certain things that Europe wants to launch on their own rockets. And they can't mm -hmm. blame them for that. But that also, like, plays with the market economics in a weird way. So, it just... It's so hard well, to really have. You're probably the only person that. that has data on this stuff, by the way. So that's why I'm trying to like chip into this because you've probably seen of you've probably actually seen numbers on certain contracts that most people can't Google if they wanted to. Um, but it's just unclear on what any of these things actually have effects on the actual launch price that we're seeing. 
Uh, you know, I like I agree with everything that you've said here. Um, yeah, launch prices have gone up, and um, supply and demand right now is is imbalanced. You know, SpaceX is king of the world as far as launch is concerned right now, so they have the ability to increase their prices. And Rocket Lab and other small launch companies have realized that because the economics of small vehicles are not as compelling as envisioned, that they need to try and offset that by raising their prices. Um, this is an area that I'm curious about for ISRO because the PSLV was historically a very cheap launch vehicle. Um, so if they can carry that same kind of pricing energy into the GSLV, um, that makes me really wonder if that's going to be like a competitive market or excuse me, a competitive vehicle. Uh, on the commercial market, and you know they don't have the same constrictions that restrictions that China has. Um, there was a time where, you know, just five years ago or so, like around when Satellogic had their their deal, um, when the Long March rockets looked very affordable, looked reliable, and were starting to make headway into the commercial sector, and then the general mood changed. Uh, emanating from the U.S., but really the, the world over. And there was sort of this uh, this binary decision that people had to make where it's like if you choose to launch with a Chinese rocket, you have now alienated yourself from the U.S. government, which is the world's biggest space customer. So you kind of pick your poison. What are you going to do? Um, but you, you can't have both. And I'd say most people realize that now and... and um, I don't follow Chinese launch companies that closely, so um, it's kind of hard to. <laughs> it is hard. I, yeah, I would like to follow them more closely. I think that would be fun, um, but I haven't seen a whole lot that goes on there. Uh, the, the most obvious thing is just that all of these companies that had contracts or, or deals with China have backed away from them. So the vast majority, you know, overwhelming majority is. Chinese entities launching on Chinese rockets. There's probably a reverse Biden stuff. Biden stuff. Yeah, totally is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to find them and get them on the show. Whoever it is out there doing, yeah, Chinese astronauts on Chinese rockets and Chinese soil. <laughs> we'll find them at some point, I'm sure. Um, before we get into the satellite industry stuff that I want to pick your brain on. Uh, you mentioned last time we chatted um, that you were watching the. Virgin Orbit bankruptcy court situation over the last week or so. I don't know if there's anything that you want to talk about there. There sounded like there was, I saw an article, I think Jeff Faust wrote the other day with some of the findings about how quickly Virgin Orbit was trying to go for sale um, after their SPAC situation, but maybe, maybe it's worth talking about for a few minutes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that detail that you highlighted was uh, the biggest takeaway for me, um, you know, because we had been at Quilty, we'd been saying beforehand that if you had a SPAC deal, uh, if you went public through a special purpose acquisition company and you were an immature company, um, this presented a lot of risk because the forgiveness for missteps was going to be in very short supply. It doesn't mean a company can't make it, but that it's going to be much harder to do so. And you, know, you look at Virgin Orbit's story, they had received you know, 
a billion over a billion dollars in investment over the course of their life from Virgin Group and from Mubadala out of the UAE. They go public you know, through this back IPO. They've got something like 82% redemption rate on, uh, on their proceeds, which would have been even worse if it weren't for the fact that they you know, found an additional investor to come in and sort of save um, or offset some of those losses. But they were still in immediate trouble from the time the IPO concluded. Yeah, you're so and there in was the Faust no, article, it said that there was the potential total was $382 million that they would get out of going SPAC, but they only got $67.8 million. And then you're saying after that, there was an additional investment, one of those like private equity rounds or whatever that happens at the same time as the SPAC. Is that what happened? Yeah, because if I remember right, they, they had around $200 million at the end of the IPO process. Uh, I forget the exact figure, but um, it wasn't sufficient for them to do what they had envisioned doing um you know i just did we did a whole report on it which i i won't spoil the whole thing here uh so my boss will be mad at me but uh (laughs) that that was one of the top takeaways was certainly this revelation that um what what had been external speculation you know about the impact of the spac deal proved to be really true um you know, I would also, you know, so a couple of other reasons why, you know, they found themselves in hot water. Um, you look at their customer base and they lacked an anchor customer. Um, you know, this is why you see everybody trying to court DOD. Uh, that's why SpaceX, as soon as they got you know some teeth, they went after the Air Force, now Space Force program to get contracts there. You know, they had NASA. You see Rocket Lab doing similar move, making similar moves. ABL, Relativity, Blue Origin. Uh, you need either a mega constellation or a big government customer to provide a reliability in terms of uh, backlog or a steady, a steady launch rate. And uh, they didn't have that. And I think combined with like a series of, of delays for. Launcher One, you know, which was supposed to have been operational in 2016, 2016, 2017, and you know didn't really get to the launch pad until 2020, and wasn't commercially successful until 2021. You know that was a, a long gap that I think cost them many of the the customers that they did have, um, and you know, it was just there were a number of things that just all kind of pinched them at the same time and it made it very tough for them as a business. Yeah. Yeah. They got that. You're right about the delay too, because if they were, I mean, remember the first rocket lab flight was May, 2017, I think off the top of my head, it was in that time range. So they would have been very quickly the second in that market. By the time they actually got flying though, 2020, 2021, they were now, pinched on price from they were as expensive as the next next class up in abl and relativity and whatnot firefly and they were the same performance as the next class down in in rocket lab and and others in that area so they had this weird like okay they they got crunched on both ends and they were marketing responsive as like oh we're responsive space because you can take off from an airport and fly to any orbit it's like that only works for so long until you're flying three times a year and you're not that responsive like every three months every four months is not 
responsive space, even if you can take off from an airport and launch to space. So it was that weird mix that was evident to me, someone who is very uninformed in terms of people that should be analyzing this stuff, people that have your position, like people in the company that even from my level, I was like, this doesn't really I feel like a lot of these things are turning the wrong way here for this company. Um, so I, I don't know. I have a general, not, I've never been big on the Virgin companies, so no one will, no one will be surprised by my bias, but I was always like, oh, I don't know about this. This is, this is, and air launch generally, I'm, I'm actually more, I'm more interested in, so I had a, a Stefan Powell from Dawn Aerospace on Miko last week to talk about their, they were starting to do rocket powered flights with their space plane. I'm more interested in that kind of air launch, which is a rocket powered plane that launches an upper stage and then flies back to the launch site. I'm way more interested in that style of air launch. Like, instead of, no, no, like, drop it with, stop it with the 747s and the strata launches and all that kind of stuff. Give me a rocket powered plane that can go significantly higher and faster than a regular airplane and then fly back to the launch site. I am here for that all day. Uh, but this other style, I don't know, the only, the only thing I thought was Virgin Orbit might get bought by, like, somebody interested in hypersonics, and they would go fully into, like, the strata launch direction of hypersonics, market to the other end of the DoD, like you mentioned. Because um, that's uh, one thing I will lay out here to be dissected, and we can come back to this later, is that if you are one of these companies that makes rockets, there are other pieces of the DoD to sell to that don't necessarily need to put things into orbit. And that is a huge market that is uh, a, currently the realm of people that do not operate in the space industry and would never sniff at the prices of certain commercial companies. So, I mean, even SpaceX themselves have been pushing, like, we'll do point-to-point Starship stuff and we'll sell it to defense logistics agencies. There's so many space-adjacent markets there uh, that in the era of, like, the constellations all being swept up by a few launch vehicles, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see certain launch companies, like, diversify into in interesting ways. Yeah, and Virgin Orbit was working with the Missile Defense Agency on making Launcher 1, or giving Launcher 1 applicability in hypersonics. You know, they weren't super descript on what exactly that entailed, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> that that was a customer line and, and a line of business that they were pursuing. You know, if you, if you ask me, I kind of, I feel like it's something that they should have pushed faster than they did because um, I think they needed to diversify their their revenue streams and uh, you know just you look at what they did since going public and uh, they were really beholden to launching you know to getting off getting off the pad or, or the runway <laughs> and uh, you know, the, their launch rate was not great you know they're averaging like two launches a year um, you know, I, I saw them tweet out recently, you know, they're still working on the next rocket. Maybe they'll launch again this year and whatever new incarnation uh, the company takes. But two flights a year is still really low, uh, especially for a commercial company without any government backing. You know, that's kind of the only way I imagine those vehicles work. You know, if you're not part of a family like Falcon Heavy being supported by Falcon 9, um, then you're not anchored by a government like the Vega, Vega C with Italy and Europe uh, or SLS. If that's not even really worth bringing up in a commercial discussion. But Well, so says you. <laughs> <laughs> that, won't let, that won't stop them from trying. <laughs> um, yeah, none, none of these rockets are really fly without... 
some deep pocketed customer that says, I want this. So they, they've got to change and they've got to do something to get their flight rate up. Um, and that either involves getting a lot of customers and getting moving and or diversifying and, and doing more than launch. So. Well, I don't, I don't know where that's, where that's going to end up, but I am shocked. There were, there were way fewer uh, like headlines referencing runways than I thought there would be. I thought there would be Virgin Orbit runs out of runway, runs off the end of the runway. I thought there would be a thousand of these, but nobody took the opportunity. So that's a bummer. Got to look uh, for some UK tabloids. I'm sure they did. That's it. probably what it was. You're totally right. <laughs> we we got to find that. Yeah. All right, UK <laughs> listeners, hit me up with "Give me the sun." I want all that. Oh, I want all that in in our tweet that at us. So I want to see it. <laughs> um, all right. The other thing I need you to help me figure out is what the hell's going on in the satellite com world. Uh, everyone's buying everyone. I've completely lost track. SES and Intel sat were fighting about who was going to get money from the FCC. Now they're merging. Uh, please help me understand the current state of everything. There's a lot happening. And, and I'll trim this. Let me trim it in a little more. Which part should I care about? That's really what I want to know. Should I care about any of this? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it depends on what you what you care about now, sir. What are you asking as it pertains to launch? As it pertains to building new satellites? As it pertains to just cheaper satellite internet? You know, what do you? Yeah, like which part which part matters to people who are into space but aren't like don't really care about like the financials of any given particular company in in Satcom, but are like a, a OneWeb customer or a Starlink customer, or they're buying you know internet from Viasat or something like that today. Like which which stuff which merger matters? Sure. So so I'll back up a little bit from that because whenever I see one of these merger headlines you know, today, they almost exclusively talk about these mergers happening as like a direct response to what Elon Musk is doing or what Amazon is doing. You know, it's like the only way to pitch the story for whatever totally. reason. Yeah. Um, and come on, you used to work in journalism. You know the reason. <laughs> I know the reason. Have you but, forgotten about clicks, sir? <laughs> I, there's only so much pandering. Even the journalists <laughs> don't have to pander. People actually do hate it, believe it or not. Um, as a reader, journalist turned reader. But um, no, the, the story was always much bigger than that. Um, there has been the talk of consolidation in the space industry and in the satellite communications industry has gone on for years. And beforehand, before all the stuff that was happening today, it used to be uh, an annoyance to the global operators like SES and Intelsat that you had so many regional operators popping up. Every country wanted to have its own satellite. You know, Laos got its own satellite. Um, Australia has its own satellites. Thailand has its own satellites. You know, Angola, Brazil, you name, you know, Lots of countries that you wouldn't expect to have a satellite will have one or two or three. Um, and they're not always driven by actual market forces, which is why they were sometimes nicknamed pride sats because it was just for the pride of the country. And you could point at a spot in the sky and be like, that's where it is. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, we named the satellite after us. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the asteroid, <laughs> the asteroid things, right? Where you can buy uh yeah, the original NFTs really is what those were. Yeah, yeah, only this one cost $300 million. <laughs> um, so, Hey, man, <laughs> you were buying the wrong NFTs, is all I'm saying. 
<laughs> so that's where, that's where it started. Um, and then the conversation sort of changed. Uh, I think you had a desire for scale. Um, you know, it was less about this kind of cropping up of little players that were like nipping at the heels of the bigger guys and uh, a recognition that scale was going to be really advantageous and driving down capacity costs and being a more effective business. Uh, but because the space business is hard, it's hard to build up scale. You know, these satellites are expensive. They take a long time to build. Every part of this is slow. Getting market access, um, building out a customer base, getting a network of service providers and all these things. And so scaling through M&A has a lot of appeal. But then you've also got some of the same uh, nationalistic barriers that preclude a lot of that. So the Asia Pacific has a lot of satellite operators that will probably never merge because they're all in different countries and their respective governments do not want to see, do not want to have to pay their SATCOM bill to their neighbor. You know, if all the American, if America had one satellite operator and Canada was like, we're going to buy it, like America would flip out. <laughs> it would never have it. Um, and it's the same thing for every other, for most other countries. So this is a huge barrier. And that's and why you I picked a neighbor that has good relations with this. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could have picked like, I don't know, someone that we don't get along as well with nearby, you know? So not even like, we don't even have to not get along with them. We just have to like, not think of them as like the friendliest nation ever, you know, like if I'm trying to think of who else, if it was like, <laughs> if it was the reverse of like, uh, so, you know, if Inmarsat wanted to buy Biasat, I do wonder how that would go down, you know, would the DOD, you know, not be happy because one of their major suppliers would be going overseas, you know, even if it's a five eyes country, you know, God forbid, it's not a five eyes country. You know, if there was like this entity in, in, uh, God, now I'm forgetting who is, isn't five eyes. Germany's not uh, just, five just eyes. pick on Italy. All right. Yeah. Italy's so Italy. easy. Yeah. <laughs> Italy wanted that. Yeah. Had some, some rich Italian billionaire and they bought, wanted to buy Intel set. Like, I think that'd be really hard. It'd be really hard pressed to, to make that happen. Um, but some of those barriers are finally coming down. So you see Udelsat in France buying OneWeb out of the UK and you see Viasat buying uh, Inmarsat also out of the UK. Um, and now possibly Intelsat and SES, which has been rumored for years. Like the big three were, they were always rumored to be combining in some way, shape or form. It's Intelsat, SES and Udelsat. And, you know, they would have talks, they would fall apart and they would acknowledge they were talking to each other. And then they'd say, no, we're not going to do it. Um, they would fight in court. Remember these, these two were fighting in court, right? About they were, they, they said they yeah. would share the FCC money and they said they wouldn't share it. And then they were, it was more tabloid stuff. <laughs> it was like the court documents had like text messages, you know, <laughs> between executives. And they were talking about like late dinners and all this like crazy. <laughs> this industry has so much drama. It's, it's hysterical. Like, you wouldn't like if, if somebody came up to me and was like, you would not believe the drama that is in the plumbing industry. <laughs> These two plumbing CEOs were texting each other about this billion dollar, like just would never cross my mind. But in space, in SACCOM. The great way to find out that like an industry niche uh, drama is to do a Google news search, type in an industry and then in quotes, put apologizes for. <laughs> it's always the best. <laughs> It's always the best niche stuff. That's the way I find it. So oh, yeah. man. I'll try it with plumbing like, later. But 
Yeah, I got to do that. That's like yeah. the next Florida man. I just hadn't even mm-hmm. realized. Yeah, I apologize for You can guess what at least half of the stories are about. Yeah. <laughs> you can take a wild guess. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, why is this happening today? So uh, I'll try to, to answer this kind of succinctly. Um, for Intelsat and SES and then for the industry broadly, um, for Intelsat and SES, you know, I think um, there's three major things that have changed. You know, one is that Intelsat was carrying a huge debt load for many years. You know, they had around 15 to $16 billion of debt uh, from past private equity owners who were not kind to the company in the long term. Um, and that kind of hung around their neck for up until chapter 11, you know, around COVID and they were able to, to escape it. Uh, so they are a much better partner today than they could have been before because nobody really wanted to share that massive debt load. Um, it just was not pretty. Um, you know, the second uh, is this this battle over the spectrum proceeds. Uh, I admittedly have fallen behind on what's happening there. I think they've resolved it. Um, I don't know for sure, but if they have, or if they think they can through M&A, you know, it becomes a way for SES to get a hold of the money that they thought belonged to them. You know, they can bury the hatchet and, uh, and just get married instead. <laughs> um, the third I thought is they had just that, resolved it because it was finally that they were actually going to finally get the money. So at this point, they're all like, ah, whatever, we'll get the we'll get we're like a year out from the cash at this point. Like, we'll just take it. Yeah. yeah it, it, I mean, it's, it's getting distributed one way or another. So um, the third is that they Intel set wants a multi orbit strategy. Um, you've seen them float a medium Earth orbit constellation idea. Um, the only company out there that has a medium Earth orbit network is SES. So if you were looking at a way to, to skip straight to the good part you know, without having to build a bunch of satellites and spend all that money and, and, and whatnot, they could merge. Um, so still nowhere on if it'll actually happen. You know, they've acknowledged that they're talking. They have not come out with an actual merger deal. But I would say the case for a merger between those two is stronger today than it has been probably any point in the past five years, um, maybe longer. But the industry as a whole, a lot of the M&A talk, I think, pertains to, it's both the scale that we talked about before and also having a multi-orbit strategy. You know, companies really want to be able to offer, you know, your traditional satellite industry is almost entirely in geostationary orbit. They want medium Earth orbit. They want low Earth orbit. Uh, and in order to get that, uh, again, a faster way than trying to fund and build your own constellation is to buy somebody that already has one and scale that way. So I would imagine, you know, I would envision that, you know, OneWeb was once almost bought by Intelsat. Um, you know, I know they had other suitors at one point and they didn't materialize, but you know, these are kind of discussions that happen in the background of the industry on and off all the time and to see them come to come to fruition like this isn't wildly surprising because uh, the industry has been soul searching for <laughs> like, the better part of half a decade now trying to figure out what the best go forward strategy is. And, you know, I think 
it really helps you know, to, to have the scale to do some of these things. Smaller and medium-sized satellite operators worry about being crowded out by the biggest players. Um, and then even big players worry about being crowded out by billionaire players. So um, it's very much, uh, I would say, a defensive game right now. And then, so on the other side, <clears throat> Utelsat um, and OneWeb got together a couple years ago at this point, uh, maybe a year ago. I forget exactly when that all started going down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Utelsat trying to have a low Earth orbit capability. Is Do you assume, based on the trajectory, that SCS and Intelsat, if that all goes together, eventually they're going to be on the hunt for somebody that's got low Earth orbit satellites? And is that what... Is that hypothetically what a is there another provider that might be like well well maybe uh intel set won't buy us eventually um that is an interesting question um you know we've seen we saw intel sat in i think it was 2017 try to merge with OneWeb, uh and they couldn't again because of their debt uh, amongst other things and then we saw ses a few years ago make a filing with the FCC for not only more NEO satellites, but a small low Earth orbit network. Um, I think that SS's conviction, you know, they have been very bullish on medium Earth orbit uh, as something that gives you most of the latency of, uh, of LEO. You know, you, like you, go up, you go up to GEO, it's like a half a second of lag time. You go to medium Earth orbit, it's like 150 milliseconds lag time. And then LEO is like 50 milliseconds. So you have shed most of it, but you don't have to go for hundreds or thousands of satellites. You can stay in the dozens and your cost can be much cheaper through that approach. So uh, I would be really surprised to see SES pursue some sort of LEO service uh, just because the rationale that they've given uh, and the money that they put behind you know, their own convictions already. Um, but I would, never, I would never say never. And this is kind of a cop-out answer, and I don't even work there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would never say never just because I've been surprised in the past. But you know, I think for those two, that medium Earth orbit is going to be their area of highest intrigue. You know, they neither of them are huge on consumer internet, and so I don't think that they're going to go to Leo because I don't think they're going to try and do a consumer internet experience. Um, also, the antenna problem has still not been solved outside of vertically integrated companies. So you look at even OneWeb, uh, and you look at the money that IntelSat and SES like those are two players that have actually invested in antenna companies, you know, they put money into Kymeta, they put money into Alcan systems, put money into Viasat and various players and said, like, you know, Phaser, help us build an antenna that's going to unlock the true potential of the satellite industry. And it hasn't been done yet. You know, it hasn't been done outside these vertically integrated guys. So it's hard to build a business case without knowing how you're going to actually reach your customers. Um, I think that lesson has been learned in the industry. I hope it's been learned a couple of times now. <laughs> and uh, it just doesn't make sense to have an incomplete plan where you've got the satellites and you've got the capacity and you've got no way to use it. 
So until that changes, I would expect more um, reluctance on the part of those big players. Now I feel like I've caught up. This is great. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Like you're saying, that the 150 milliseconds of latency versus 50, like there are a handful of things where that really matters, and there's a lot of things where it doesn't. So when you're, when you're running the numbers, it's like, mm-hmm. eh, like in this day and age of, of Zoom meetings, it's probably more impactful than it was pre-COVID uh, when it was mostly like, you know, everything but gaming. So Halo player you are, like you would be sad about it, but most people would be fine if their Netflix took another 100 milliseconds. It would be fine. Uh, but it, it's always interesting to see, like, where is everyone balancing out? What things are they prioritizing over others? And uh, how much money does it cost to actually roll things out in that way? Uh, is, is interesting. So, yeah. Well, all right, we nailed it. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, before we get out of here for the day, you're, so you're going out to Space Symposium. Are there particular things that you're going out there to track, or you're, are you going to see certain things, are there, or are you just going to be there and partake in the mayhem? <laughs> uh, a little of all. So Space Symposium is not a conference that I've gone to as religiously as some of the others that are more in the satellite communications world. So I just don't know it as well as the rest. Um, I do know, I think it's the biggest, you know, of, of all like, you know, the satellite shows in DC, you know, last month, Euroconsult is small. Uh, and then there's kind of various tiny, even more niche shows across the US, Europe and Asia. Um, but Space Symposium has like the biggest booths. You know, the show floor is amazing. You know, it's kind of fun to just walk around like it's Hollywood and just like see all the <laughs> stuff that people have put out there, you know, get free snacks and uh, whatnot. Um, but I guess one thing that I'm really looking for out of the show this year is to try and like get a pulse on like, what's the mood of the industry right now? And I feel like I, I usually try to do that at the, the SATCOM shows um, because that's, that's fun. And, you know, it gives you kind of an indication of where people are going to be investing their money and time. Um, but for a broader space, you know, including cislunar space and civil space and uh, all of those things, more DOD talk, uh, I'm really curious like, what the overall theme is going to be and what the, the mood of the, the conference will be. So that's what I'm looking out for. A vibe check. I always love doing a vibe check. This is what I do when I, when I go places. I do the vibe check. and They were, uh, I feel like, pretty right on about Astrobotic the last time I did a vibe check. So... That's good news. All right, uh, so I'll be looking for your vibe check for <laughs> I'm going to be fairly busy, so we'll see. I, I will have some time to explore the floor, which, yeah, I mean, so when we went to IAC in D.C. that one year, I had more fun just, like, prowling around the booth area and, like, making people talk to me about whatever they've got going on. And uh, there were some people I ran into that didn't weren't interested in talking to me at all. Uh, and then there's some people that wanted to chat a lot. So I always enjoyed that. Uh, so I'm, I'm pumped, but, uh, it should be a really fun time. Like I said, you'll be live with me Wednesday. We've got a whole host of Miko stuff happening and then off nominal live. It'll be Wednesday at three 30 mountain. Uh, so slightly later than our usual slot. Uh, it'll be live streamed. I don't know exactly if it'll be on the off nominal channel yet. So keep your eyes posted on Twitter and stuff. I'll post there, but That'll be uh, Michael Sheets of CNBC will be with me, Lauren Grush of Bloomberg, and Jacqueline Felcher of Payload. 
assuming that they don't all end up at uh, Boca Chica uh, for the Starship launch, in which case you're coming back on the next episode of Off Nominal. <laughs> I'll drag you and a couple people from Quilty. Uh, we should talk about Quilty Analytics. Can you plug some of the stuff that you've been working on lately and uh, how people can check it out? Sure. Uh, wow. So I don't know if you can do this right now. This is Ooh. a little bit of an early reveal, but if you Ooh. type in quiltyspace.com, oh. you'll be able to see the new website. Wow, look at this. There we go. <laughs> We're getting a little a website launch. This is the first one. We've had book announcements and stuff, but we've never had uh, website unveils. Yeah, so here's the, the new website and uh, the new company name. So we are going to be at Space Symposium showing people, you're giving people kind of a an under-the-hood look at some of the new stuff that we've got coming in terms of research uh, that you see, May 2023. Uh, we're going to have a lot more responsive research, so I'll call it. I don't know. If, maybe that's like a cursed term because like responsive launch didn't go anywhere. No, but, in my other uh, half of my life, responsive web design really worked out, so that's good. <laughs> um, but no, we, we want to be kind of close to the ground with like a lot of the, the analytical work that we do. And so uh, I'm really excited about some of the new research that we're going to have coming out later this year. Um, you know, I would say our, our, even our virgin orbit uh, autopsy piece was like a good indicator of like following current events and trying to give detailed insight from the team here, which you know, has decades of experience just in both M&A and transactional stuff, and then just following the industry from a financial perspective. So it was a, a lot of experience that you know, we all get in and like, we've got these email threads inside where we're just debating stuff that's happening in the industry. And you know, some of that will get polished and, and published more regularly. So some cool stuff coming up. Nice. And you, you have a booth at the show? We do. We do. I don't know the booth number off the top of my head. Um, we are near... I think we're near the Australians, which means that we'll probably be in the general vicinity of beer. Hold uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. on, I have the map link. We can uh, we can look at the map. So there's <laughs> red red thing is red wire all the way over here. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna have to zoom in a little bit. I see. Let's see. Hopefully, what if you're like super close? Let's see. I'm scrolling around. Uh, maybe this is a different part. I don't know. You gotta I find out the booth numbers. Might be another room. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I see Australia. Maybe you're just not on this map yet. We, we might be too small, which is you okay. Might, you might be over <laughs> here. Like, in the, well, there's an empty one right by Australia. Oh, so. maybe that's us. All right. Well, look, look near Australia. It's not too far from where I'm hanging out. So you'll have a short walk for the cool. show. But uh, you can get to that link uh, if they are going to update it and finally put Quilty on the, the goddamn map like they should be. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, mainenginecutoff.com slash live I've got the link uh, there you can check out the thing and check out the whole schedule uh, so that's uh, that's what's happening man I appreciate you hanging out so next week I'll be live at the show and then the week after Jake will finally be back uh, after his hiatus so uh, we'll see what he comes back with I don't, I don't know what he's discovered he was cruising across the Atlantic so he was going full on uh, full on not full on Titanic, hopefully, but emulating yeah, what. Use any uh, any satellite services out there? How is he staying connected? Oh yeah, we'll have to check. We'll have to. We should tweet at him and see. He probably he probably got something. <laughs> He's probably got something cooking. That's what I uh, want to know. <laughs> asking the real questions here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Caleb. Thank you so much for hanging out. 
and uh, hopefully next time we can actually do one from my couch, like we planned. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one, end of test.